I think it's what the cut the content we deserve. There's a lot of heavy news these days. And I think talking about our pets more would give everyone just an hour, 30 minutes of stress relief. This is not the first time that we've come to the determination that we should turn this into a pet podcast. (laughs) We talk about it a lot. (laughs) We would really be doing a big service by providing 30 minutes of just wholesomeness. I think there was one year where Lauren Baltus and I really uh, thought hard about doing an April Fool's Day episode that was five minutes long of us just talking about our cats. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm here for this. I'm here for this. We determined not to do it because we're like, our audience is going to be so confused. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Dolcello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor of Water and Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will discuss a water crisis in Lebanon related to high fuel prices. We'll also dig into the impacts of Hurricane Ida on all aspects of water, from drinking water to wastewater and stormwater. Finally, our interview this month is with Scott Wilson, President and CEO of Regenis. I spoke with Scott about PFAS, the impact on groundwater, a rise in consumer awareness, and how PFAS is a one water issue. First, on to a little bit of news. There is a developing drinking water crisis currently happening in Lebanon. While Lebanon is a relatively water-rich country for its region, poor water infrastructure means bottled water is the most common source of drinking water. This is according to news source Middle East High. However, a severe fuel crisis is causing bottled water prices to increase fivefold as high fuel prices mean that bottled water companies cannot operate their trucks or bottling plants. In response, residents are boiling water or drinking polluted tap water. This really struck me because we've spent a lot of time in the past few months on the podcast talking about water scarcity. And this this, uh, drinking water crisis really piqued my curiosity because there are a lot of barriers to access beyond water scarcity. So I guess briefly, I'll just open the floor if anybody had some commentary they wanted to share after digging into this, Bob. Yeah, so it harkens back to the whole concept of you can be water scarce in a water rich area. For example, Joliet, Illinois, is very close to Lake Michigan comparatively to many other cities in the the country. But their, their groundwater aquifer was beginning to run out and they ran into this issue of we need a solution for drinking water when that no longer is there. And we have an article on that in our September 2021 issue of Water and Waste Digest, but it, it highlights how even in water-rich areas, water scarcity can occur, whether that's a depletion of actual water resources or the quality of the water is so bad that it can't be used for drinking water. That's the other element too. Maybe you have a lot of water, but it's just in really bad quality. What this reminds me of too is Lake Mead, which hit historic lows this year. And it ties back to how you, again, like Bob was saying, being a water rich area, but water scarcity can still impact you. So it just, it comes full circle. There was one quote from this original source article that um, kind of blew me away a little bit. 
which was, uh, it was quoted from a Habitat senior planning and infrastructure engineer who said they call the municipal water domestic water, not potable water. Um, so even though they do have a municipal water structure in place, uh, no one drinks it. The other element to that, which we know because of lead contamination and whatnot, is that even with the water being treated, when it leaves the facility, it may be fully potable and totally good, but the pipes it's traveling through are not, and therefore create this pollution issue as well. Um, the last thing I wanted to note on this as well is it reminds me of South America and Mexico and Brazil and some other areas um, in South America where the water is in such poor quality that people tend to drink Coca-Cola or other sugary beverages instead of water because it's the only safe thing to drink and it causes a complete national health crisis then because suddenly everyone is drinking way too much sugar there it, it's a very it compounds on itself in a very unique way it's wild yeah that is well uh i encourage everyone to check out the article read a little bit more but let's move on to some news a little closer to the U.S. about the impacts of Hurricane Ida. Bob, if you want to get us rolling on that. Yeah, certainly. So Hurricane Ida made landfall in Louisiana on August 29th, 2021. It impacted all aspects of water, from drinking water to wastewater and even stormwater management problems. Hundreds of thousands of people found themselves in places where water infrastructure was badly damaged by the storm and pumps and treatment plants were left without power. This is according to New York Times. Also in Jefferson Paris, there were parish, there were lines to pick up bottled water that went on for blocks and blocks and blocks. So similar to the Lebanon issue where the water quality became such an issue that the only clean water to drink was bottled water. Additionally, in New Orleans, the New Orleans Sewerage and Water Board faced a spike in water usage and difficulty uh, in powering its sewer system in the wake of the storm. While the drainage system worked against the storm, according to the news source New Orleans Advocate, energy transmission lines to the entire region failed, which left it entirely dependent on power generated by in, power generated in-house to run the drainage system. And at one point, 80 of the 84 lift stations had completely gone down. This is very reminiscent to me, although the cause is very different, of the situation in Texas back in February where the grid went down and all the utilities were basically had to use their own generators and whatnot. And then it turned into a fuel issue because they couldn't get fuel. So then there was no power. So just a very challenging system uh, thing for this, these systems to have. And it just goes to show how current, how extreme weather events create such a huge problem across many different facets for utilities. And Katie, I know that in New York, Ida also created some problems there just from the offshoot of the storms uh, making their way to the Northeast. Yeah, absolutely. So beyond the immediate impacts on landfall, Hurricane Ida left lingering impacts across the country, including <clears throat> New York and New Jersey, which both faced flash flood emergencies following the storm. This marked the first flash flood emergency ever issued for Northeast New Jersey and the second for New York City. In both states, New York and New Jersey declared states of emergency. Um, additionally, according to the National Weather Service, rainfall in Central Park broke a 94-year-old record, while Newark, New Jersey broke a 62-year-old record. So the amount of rain was just immense, to say the least. So it 
the hurricane Ida definitely left left impacts wherever it went, which was is wild. So I certainly have a feeling we'll be seeing more and more some first time effort or records broken increasingly um, mm-hmm. as as these storms increase. Yeah, definitely, because they're not only increasing in frequency, but also intensity. So definitely agree. Yeah, just the the importance of storm of correct stormwater management practices in cities that historically haven't been using them because they're relatively old like new york where everything is impervious so water's just going to wash off everywhere having some more infiltration elements to things could make a massive difference but it's going to cost so much money to do that for a city that size right yeah that's a big hurdle for sure for a lot of cities across the country that funding is is vital also the importance of emergency preparedness. I mean, this is something we talked about in the past couple of years with COVID having to have businesses really pivot and create preparedness um, plans. But I believe I read in that New York Times article on uh, the impacts of, of New Orleans that some of the lift stations that had to use backup generators, the backup generators even failed too. Uh, mm-hmm. So what do you do in a situation like that? Um, continuing to... Uh, fine-tuned emergency preparedness plans will be important as these evolve. Yeah, and and again, just relating that back to Texas with the winter storm there in February, there is a degree to which you can only prepare so much. You, they they were very prepared. They were working twelve days in advance of this storm for most of those facilities, and they had prepared for practically everything they thought would could happen, and things still didn't go to plan. Um, so there is a degree to which you can only prepare so much for wa- for this much water to come through. Do you really prepare for that on a regular basis? Because how frequently is it coming? What is the frequency of something like this? Is it worth the investment to handle that type of thing for the one time every X number of years for it? Um, so it's a really, it's a conundrum, I think, for utilities of how far do you take your preparedness to and what are you required to do? Yeah, that was kind of a downer, huh? <laughs> I mean, the, Hurricane Ida is—it's scary. What it's happened? Pretty scary. It, honestly, yeah. I think I think giving it that gravity is an important is important to do, um, and highlighting the challenges of of everything is also important because you know, like, how much do you prepare for these types of things? How far do you go? How much do you invest in emergency preparedness? Because it's going to take away from the money that's used on other things too you know yeah. like you still need yeah. to do all this other stuff do you always do you prepare for the once in a 50 year storm or do you fix your lead service lines <laughs> Ooh, that's the question eh you know like it's like where do you invest that's the money the question. It's a, that's a that's a massive challenge of like how do you spend your money so ominous note to end on but let's hop on over to that interview now um, where I chatted with Scott Wilson president and CEO of Regenesis on all things PFOS and how PFOS is indeed a one water issue so here we go Alrighty, great. Welcome to the Talking Underwater podcast. I'm Lauren Dalcello, Managing Editor for WQP, and I've got on the call today Scott Wilson, President and CEO of Regenesis. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today, Scott. 
Well, nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So uh, this month's episode of the podcast is all about PFAS. So I thought first and foremost, let's start pretty high level there. Of course, a lot of our listeners will know this background, but I think it's good to kind of establish where we're at. So first high level, what is PFAS? Well, well, PFAS is is a is an acronym given for a, a, a group of chemicals that are perfluorinated or polyfluorinated alkyl substances is the, the technical term for it. And, and really, what it is is it's a mixture of compounds uh, that are that are uh, composed of a, a, a series of carbon atoms linked together, usually with a, a different substitute on one end, like a an acid group on one end or a sulfate uh, sulfonate group on one end, and then they're covered with fluorine molecules or uh, fluorine atoms. And so the atoms, the fluorine atoms and the carbon atoms are are combined with a bond, and that bond is very 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 difficult to break. It's one of the strongest bonds in nature. Uh, and so uh, what you have is you have this mixture of molecules that were man-made uh, called polyfluorinated alkyl substances that are composed of these these chains of carbon atoms that are surrounded by fluorines with one end that's different. And 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 really what that does is it imparts what's known as a, a surfactant-like property. And what that means is that these they tend to act as very similar to soaps with with one one end of the molecule wanting to stay inside of the of oils or or non-water-like molecules and the other end of it wants to stay in water. And so it acts sort of like a soap by drawing oils into water. But what's important is the longer chain PFAS, that is the, the, the PFAS molecules that are longer, they tend to really want to stay in, uh, in, in fat or in oils and not into water. And what that means is that when, when they happen to come into the body or into, into a, an animal, for, for instance, it tends to want to stay in the in the fat or, or, or the non-water groups within the body and not be expelled from the body in urine or, or, or you know, in respiration or anything like that. So what it does is it tends to build up over time. And this is called bioaccumulative. And that's one of the things that are really, uh, that, that's really a problem for us with PFAS molecules is that these, particularly the longer chain ones, they tend to bioaccumulate and stay in the body and continue to increase in concentration. And because these carbon-fluorine bonds that are part of it are so difficult to break, sunlight doesn't break them, chemical oxidation doesn't break them, uh, biodegradation is very, very difficult. There's only been one instance of, of biodegradation uh, shown to work on degrading these compounds that they just don't go away, and, and so they're known as forever chemicals. So they, two big problems. They don't degrade very fast, so they, they're forever chemicals, as they're known. And secondly is they bioaccumulate inside the body, particularly the longer chain ones. Beautiful. Thank you. And the, the writer in me loves a good metaphor, too. So thank you for that. So where can it be found, though? Anything surprising? Anything people wouldn't necessarily suspect? Well, you know, just uh, one other thing about these is that there's, 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 there's thousands of these different types of, yeah. of PFAS. Thousands and thousands. I mean, some people I've read the five thousand plus. Other places will say nine thousand plus. Different conformations or types of these compounds. We call them PFAS or PFAS as the whole group. 
But, um, you, you know, you asked, where do you find them? Well, you know, uh, it, they were actually first uh, formulated by man, and, and they don't occur in nature. So they're, they, they were formulated by man in the 1940s, and they, they came out initially as a coating to have a, a nonstick type of a coating, uh, to make a nonstick type of a coating out of it. And then we also real, then man realized that they were, these, these compounds were also fire retardant. We found out that they, they were also uh, so, so foaming. They made great foams. Uh, and so we also found out that they, they're good for uh, not only non-sticking for, for Teflon-type materials, but that that could also be put onto clothing and have different, different uh, attributes for, 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 for passing water and not pass, and passing air and water and not passing uh, other compounds for uh, you know, everything from odors to to even cooking in materials. Anyway, uh, so we found that the, we we can find these in all sorts of compounds uh, and all sorts of, of products. Uh, just to name a few, uh, of course, Teflon and nonstick for firefighting foams, surface coatings, waterproof water repellents. Uh, it goes on and on. There's there's it, all sorts of things. And just as a comment, you know, uh, a lot of big corporations have been vilified for, for making these compounds, uh, particularly recently in the press. But you have to put it in context. You know, if you coming off of World War II, when these compounds were first available, I mean, it was better living through chemistry was a moniker, right? So people were looking to new chemical compounds to, to better our daily lives. I mean, look at, for instance, you know, women started wearing nylon stockings instead of silk stockings, right? Men started wearing bandlon shirts instead of wool or cotton. These were all new inventions of, of, of chemistry. And lo and behold, uh, you know, the, the housewife of the 50s could now spray a, or 60s could spray a, a coating on their pan and fry an egg without having it stick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it made our lives all better. And yet now we're, we're kind of realizing that Maybe it was a little overdone and we went overboard. Uh, just one other comment is, you know, back then, we didn't have the analytical techniques to even n know how soluble these compounds were, let alone the diagnostic tools that medicine has now to to determine what's toxic and what's not. And so, you know, now we're now we're looking at these compounds and saying, boy, they might uh, they might they might be generating some some toxic uh, they might have toxic properties even at very, very, very low concentrations, parts per trillion, that we 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 were only recently able to even measure. Right. Yeah. So. Of course. It certainly makes you wonder what else we think is a good thing now that we may have some unsavory, surprising uh, information about in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure, Lauren. So I see you have quite a background in the groundwater side of the water industry as well, some past experience with NGWA and, and, and those folks who are wonderful. So I'm particularly interested to how you approach this question is, how does PFAS contamination impact groundwater professionals differently than surface water? And kind of what unique challenges exist in treatment and disposal there? Great. Well, so, uh, you know, P PFAS... Uh, PFAS can can get into the environment in, in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, and during manufacturing, it can be expelled through smokestacks. 
uh, into the air. It can be uh, it can be held in tanks and leak into the subsurface from tanks and into soils and then groundwater. It can wash off the surface of, of properties into surface waters. So there's lots of ways it can get into the environment. And I, I think one of the things that we have to just to put in perspective is that you know groundwater that is well water water derived from the subsurface and pulled to the surface vis-a-vis -vis wells. That's used for about 51% of, or I should say, drinking water in the United States is composed, 51% of it comes from groundwater. Uh, in, in the rural communities, it's over 90% of their drinking right. water is coming from groundwater out of wells. So, you know, gr groundwater that's impacted by PFAS is a big deal. It's a big issue. Uh, and so for, for groundwater professionals, that is people that are, that are in the business of, of, of restoring polluted groundwater or, or using groundwater as a resource, PFAS contamination is a real problem. Um, these, these compounds get into groundwater, as I mentioned, it could be from rain, it could be, it, it could be from uh, stormwater or, or runoff that gets down into the, into yeah. the ground and into groundwater. That those contaminants, once they're there, uh, there's there's only a few ways to treat them, uh, and and the, the real problem with anything in groundwater is the potential for it to hit a surface water body, or for it to impact a receptor for drinking water, and the real challenge to the groundwater professional is how do I eliminate the risk of this PFAS from from migrating down gradient in the in the subsurface. And impacting a drinking water supply, or drink, or, or impacting a surface water body. And uh, many people aren't familiar with what groundwater is. Groundwater itself is, is nothing Absolutely. more than water, water that's moving into the subsurface by rain or, or however migrating down, and then it it actually is just filling the, the pores of the soil or filling the pores of the rock. That's groundwater. And if there's more groundwater in one area, it's going to be at a higher elevation than others. It'll migrate down gradient, down, down gravity, if you will. So groundwater is generally always moving. And, and if there's PFAS in that groundwater, it's what we call a groundwater plume, P-L-U-M-E. And you have this plume of contamination. And, and as it's migrating down gradient, the last thing you want it to do is to impact a surface water body like a stream or or a, or a lake, or a drinking water body. I, I should say a drinking water supply, like it, like a like a recovery well for a municipal drinking water or domestic water supply. And so, you know, there's several ways to to treat that, but the the goal is always the same, and that is to eliminate the risk of that migration to impact those receptors. The typical way of doing it is to put in a an interception well or a line of interception wells and pull that water to the surface. Once you pull it to the surface, you've, you've, you've cut off that plume, so it's no longer migrating down gradient, but now you have to treat that water. You have millions of gallons of water coming to the surface. You have to filter it through filters. And when you filter it through filters, then what do you do with the filters? Currently, you have to dispose of them either in a landfill or send them off to an incineration facility and have them incinerated. It's really the only two ways you can handle it. And right now, Landfills are becoming very short supply. 
Um, you know, most landfill operators don't want the responsibility of having to have somebody else's PFAS contamination in their landfill. And uh, about a year ago, um, there was a uh, about a year ago there was a uh, an incinerator that was shown to it was supposed supposedly a key incinerator for destroying PFAS. It was shown that the, the incinerator was actually emitting PFAS or partially combusted PFAS into the air and it was raining down on the city. Oh my gosh! So there's questions as to just how how well this can be incinerated. And that work was done by Bennington College, and it was in New York where the where the incinerator was. As a result of that, there's been several bills uh, in U.S. Congress to ban the incineration of PFAS, and several states have either pending uh, pending legislation or have passed legislation on banning P their incineration of PFAS. So the question is, what do you do with it once you've filtered it out of the water that you've brought to the surface? One other thing that I'll mention is that the Biden administration is moving forward. They've claimed that, that they've stated that they're moving forward with with uh, making two specific PFAS molecules. These are the longer chain ones that are more bioaccumulative. It's PFOA and PFOS. That's mm -hmm. PFOA and PFOS. They're planning on making those two compounds a hazardous material under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And um, if, if that is done, that will, make, that will mean that there is an MCL, which is the maximum concentration limit, that, that, uh, that can't be surpassed uh, for drinking water. And uh, right now, the EPA does not regulate any PFAS. The only thing they have is they have what's called a, a health advisory level. And they've said the health advisory level for PFO and PFOS combined of 70 parts per trillion uh, is uh, less than that is, is acceptable. Over that's uh, not acceptable. Uh, but now, in, it, now it looks like the, the the administration wants to actually put in formal regulations under the Safe Drinking Water Act and uh, making these hazardous materials. These, the PFO and PFAS hazardous materials and putting formal regulations on them. If that occurs, it generally follows that under what's known as the Comprehensive Environmental Cleanup and Liability Act, CERCLA, also known as Superfund, it generally follows that under Superfund that those compounds will be considered a hazardous material. And if that's the case, disposing of that canister of a filter, that filter cartridge or that that, that filtrate material that you've pulled the, the PFAS out with, that's going to be incredibly expensive mm -hmm. to, dis, to dispose and handle because now it's a hazardous material and has to be taken to a formal hazardous material storage or, or disposal facility. Extremely expensive. Extremely expensive. So anyway, if, if you need to treat PFAS in the groundwater right now, Typical method is to put in a pumping system, pull it to the surface, filter it out, and either send it off to be burned or send it off to a disposal facility. And what, what, what's emerging now, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's new technologies that, that, are, that can actually be placed right in the subsurface. You can inject forms of colloidal activated carbon, and it will convert portions of the subsurface into filter zones. So that as the, the aquifer, as the water moves through the aquifer itself, the PFAS can be filtered out in place 
where it just stays right in that in that one zone and eliminates the risk of it moving down gradient at all. And this is gaining in popularity now. It's called colloidal activated carbon. That's gaining in popularity and is actually being used. I think it's like 20 projects now it's been used on. And uh, these range from small pilot demonstrations to large refinery sites where in, in you know thousands of, of, of lineal feet of uh, activated carbon treatment zone has been placed in the subsurface and it's blocking the PFAS from migrating into into surface waters and or drinking water supply wells. So that's another way to do it. Yeah, the disposal issue is something I definitely wanted to dig, dig into more because that really creates a circular issue for PFAS. It's one of the biggest obstacles to effective treatment. But we're getting yeah, a little close sure. on time, so I just want to ask you one more question, which you did kind of touch on this a little bit earlier when you were kind of talking about the relationships between the different uh, aspects of water and how PFAS impacts that. But on the Talking Underwater podcast, we often talk about this concept of one water, how all aspects of the water cycle from wastewater to drinking to stormwater are interconnected. So how is PFAS a one water issue? Well, you know, it's, I'll, I'll tell you how it's a one water issue. Uh, there was just recently a study that was published uh, that actually showed it was actually it was performed by the Integrated Deposition Network, which is funded by the EPA. It's, a, it's run out of the University of Indiana or Indiana University, and they actually looked at what's happening in the Great Lakes area, and they tested six different sites within the Great Lakes. They tested rainwater coming down, okay. and they actually showed that in the rainwater at the six sites. The concentration of PFAS in the rainwater samples collected range from 100 to 400 parts per trillion. And right now, the health advisory limit by the US EPA is 70. So the rainwater raining down is already exceeding the health advisory standard. And that's just, that, that Lauren, is actually dropping into the soil and then moving right into the groundwater that we have to drink. 98% yeah. of the people within the U.S., their blood is has detectable amounts of PFAS in it. And so the rain comes down, goes into the soil, drains into the groundwater, gets into the lakes, gets into drinking water, gets into people. It's all one big, big cycle. You get it. I'm with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All and, right. you know, yes, yeah, so, uh, please go ahead. No, go ahead and finish up your thoughts, certainly, Scott. Well, I was just going to say that, that you know, it's been found in the in, in polar bears, the blood in yeah. polar bears. It's been found in seals, sea lions. It's found it's, – it's everywhere. And what we have to do is we have to break the chain before it gets into the aquatic environment. We have to break the chain before it gets into our bodies through drinking water and showering where we inhale it and our food supply and uh so i think it's going to be it'll be a a big a big task for us particularly in light of the the prevalence of it throughout the world but it's one of those things that that you know we we have to find a solution for it uh we, otherwise it'll just continue to bioaccumulate and, and move up the food chain 
Well, on a solution-oriented note is a great way to end. So I thank you for your time today, Scott, and sharing your insight with Talking Underwater podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. Thanks for that interview, Scott. We appreciate your time and hopping on the podcast. Now let's head over to a little bit of housekeeping before we wrap up today's episode. So just briefly from WQP, wanted to let you all know, I'll be doing a little traveling in September, heading to the Water Quality Association Mid-Year Leadership Conference and the Eastern Water Quality Association Conference. If you're a listener, love to see you and connect. Give me a shout. And we've been mentioning this every single episode for quite some time and this will probably be the last time we do mention it because the Scranton Gillette Water Communications Water Group including Water and Waste Digest and Stormwater Solutions will be hosting the Water Pavilion at the Utility Expo September 27th to 29th at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. You can register still today at sgcwaterpavilion.com. We would really love to see you. Katie and I will most certainly be there, so please stop by if you're at the show. We'd love to connect with you. I also wanted to let everyone know who is in the municipal sphere. We have our State of the Industry survey up for WWD. You can reach that survey at bit.ly slash WWDSOTI podcast. This year, anyone who is completing the survey by September 17th will be entered into a raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So please take some time to fill out the survey. We'd appreciate your responses. And finally, SWS, WWD, and WQP have teamed up again with Global Waterworks for another webinar series. Starting September 14th, join us for a series on water reuse. The webinar begins at 1 p.m. Central Time, and you can register at bit.ly slash gwwreuse1. We uh, hope you'll join us. That does wrap up our episode for today. So don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Additionally, you can reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. See you next month.